0: How do you decide what story to believe about someone? Well, of course, you usually tell yourself that you want to believe the truest story, and you try to look at the facts. But what if there seem to be reliable facts that directly contradict each other? How do you know what story to believe? Doesn't it often just come down to a hunch, an intuition you've developed about what kind of character this person had? But sometimes, of course, maybe there's conflict and contradictions within that character that you have to consider. Maybe that person could have done either of those things. Plutarch had to work from the sources that he had at his disposal, and most of the histories he found written about this period were written by Gaius Marius' enemies. People like Sulla, who wrote his memoirs about this period. Rutilius Rufus, the Stoic, also wrote a history covering these events. Posidonius of Rhodes did too. He was Rufus's friend, a philosopher, a stoic. Posidonius, a man who is on intimate terms with Metellus Numidicus. Even Catullus, Marius's co-commander, wrote his own version of things, Plutarch cites him. Plutarch was normally a pretty even-handed biographer, but even Plutarch, again just reading the stuff that he's got, at points, he can hardly contain his antipathy for Marius in his biography. But there is another side of Marius, the man that was the most famous Roman of his day, even the most beloved, not just in Rome, but in all of Italy, and to many in Africa, Gaul, and Spain. Gaius Marius, once again, was a man about whom it was impossible to be indifferent. No matter how much you hated him or blamed him for starting the Great Roman Civil War, you have to admit, his life was a hell of a story. Because it is the story, and in this episode especially, of a man going from greatest Roman alive to public enemy number one. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Cost of Glory where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes in order to sharpen ourselves for the present. We use as our guide, Plutarch, the writer of the parallel lives. This is part three of three of the life of Gaius Marius. Before we get started, a quick shout out to our show sponsor for this series. Once again, ideamarket.io, building a new incentive structure for facts and truth on the internet. Also, we have a guest narrator for this episode. He's a friend of mine. His name is Justin Murphy. Justin and I have in common that we are former academics, and Justin is the host of the Other Life podcast, which is dedicated to philosophy, science, and technology at the frontiers of internet culture. He's got a great, thought-provoking newsletter with more than 5,000 subscribers, and I subscribe to it and highly recommend it. And Justin and the Other Life podcast team also sponsor a large and growing community of independent intellectual entrepreneurs. It's called Indie Thinkers. It's now built around an accelerator program, and you can check out his website, otherlife.co, for the newsletter and the podcast. And also the community can be found at IndyThinkers.org, or you can find Justin on Twitter at J-M-R-P-H-Y. And those links are all in the show notes. And thanks, Justin, for being a fan of the cost of glory. When we last left Marius, he was seemingly at the height of his career. He would climbed to the top by becoming the man that the Romans needed most in their hour of trouble. Marius had an acute sense of timing, both in seeing rare political opportunities and in knowing just when to strike his enemy on the battlefield. And he used this sense to take control of the war with Jugurtha, and then to defeat the Northern Barbarians, the Teutones and the Cimbri. Marius allied himself with Saturninus, a radical tribune of the plebs. Saturninus got a series of controversial laws passed that helped Marius secure his own political legacy. A key piece was land grants for Marius's poorer veterans. And in this process, Marius and Saturninus engineered, again through careful timing, the downfall and exile of Metellus, a leading man of the Senate and Marius' former commander. And now, this success created a new problem. Because with the Senate sort of humbled, At the shocking turn of events, Saturninus and his friend Glaucia start pressing their advantage, intimidating the Senate, making big plans for breaking more rules. Now Saturninus and Glaucia are populists, demagogues for sure, but they were from respectable old families, and they hadn't had to work their way up from basically zero like Marius had. Marius had learned the importance of moderation and patience. It wasn't Marius' style to gloat over opponents he defeated. But now he's having a tough time restraining his new allies according to his own values. They've actually been trying to lure away Marius' soldiers from him even, which was bold. And more than that, they're starting to threaten the balance of power. And one day, just as Marius expected, they pushed too far. But Marius is ready. Glaucia wanted to run for the consulship for the year 99 BC. They're in the year 100, and consuls begin their terms on the first day of the year, on January 1st. But Glaucia was praetor for the year 100, and the law said that you had to wait two years between a praetorship and a consulship. Glaucia must have thought, well, Gaius Marius wouldn't mind breaking the rules, would he? He was in his fifth consulship in a row, his sixth overall. That was pretty egregious. But you know, from Marius' perspective, what crisis so great was facing the state now, and what special competence so extraordinary did this Glaucia guy bring to the table that he should show such contempt for political norms? Hadn't Marius' own success shown, rather, that if you want to break the rules in the political game— you'd better find a different, better rule to break them with. I mean, you can't just ignore them. And Marius, as one of the consuls, had all the say in the matter, because it's the job of the current consuls to preside over the elections for the next year's consulship. So Marius and the other consul, who was a buddy of his, they formally disallow Glaucia's candidature. Glaucia is furious, and so is Saturninus. But instead of accepting a defeat... And learning some patience, they just push harder. And on the election day, they decide to bring their huge mob of supporters into the forum and propose Glaucia for candidature anyway. He's a write-in, you could say. And they're implicitly daring anyone to challenge them, right in front of Marius's face. Arrogance. Now, one of the other candidates was massively popular and... He was elected immediately, Marcus Antonius, who was a friend of Marius, a senior guy in the Senate. Actually, that's the grandfather of the famous Mark Antony, friend of Julius Caesar. But then the second spot in the consulship is up for contest. And as the votes come in, it starts looking like a toss-up between the right-in Glaucia and another man who was a longtime friend of Marius. His name was Memmius. Memmius. And Memmius was an old supporter of Marius. He was a tribune of the plebs years ago when Marius got elected consul for the first time. Memmius was instrumental in Marius's electoral victory, his first one. He helped the urban poor come over to Marius's side. Memmius was a solid politician. And he was a threat to Saturninus and Glaucia Because he basically stood for everything they did, he was just older and more respectable. And he was in their way. Memmius and Glaucia are there in the forum as the votes are getting counted and, well, harsh words are exchanged and a riot breaks out. And some people later claim that it was just an escalation that led to an accident. But others swore they saw a very deliberate move of a group of Glaucia's thugs head towards Memmius in the chaos. But either way, Memius got clubbed to death in front of everyone. And other people were killed too. And as the brawl ends and the crowds part and people start to realize what's happened, word reaches the Senate House. It's right there overlooking everything. An outrage spreads through the forum. The Senate immediately passes a state of emergency vote. That is... In the famous Roman formula for temporary martial law, they instruct the consuls to do whatever is necessary to defend the Republic. It's called the Senatus Consultum Ultimum. It's what they used against Gaius Gracchus. Saturninus and Glaucia and their supporters, they panic and they rush up to the Capitoline Hill, which overlooks the Forum. They barricade themselves in And maybe they were expecting the Roman people to rally around them. They are populists, after all. But what Saturninus and Glaucia hadn't appreciated at this point is that the Senate has been working behind the scenes to detach the urban populace from them all this time, ever since the exile of Metellus. The urban poor loved Metellus. He was a decorated general, and these smooth talkers these city politicians they'd brought down a good man Marius's role in all that was ambiguous conveniently but Saturninus's guilt was undeniable and the optimates also had been pointing out to many of their clients among the urban poor that Saturninus's laws in favor of Marius's soldiers weren't actually in the urban poor's favor Most of those soldiers were from the Italian countryside with weird accents or even unintelligible dialects. And a number of them weren't even Roman citizens. And these foreigners were getting all the upside of Rome's wars. Country estates now. Membership in new veteran retirement colonies while the poor Roman working man got bread and circuses. And the plebs loved poor Memmius too, for that matter, the dead candidate. And so... There was no uprising, no protest against the state of emergency action. The plebs did not come to the aid of Saturninus and Glaucia and their small band of diehards. Instead, the Senate personally marched out of the Curia, the Senate House, carrying clubs. And there was Catullus, Rutilius Rufus, Vicinius Crassus, the remaining Metelli, the Caesar brothers. And Marius summons his troops to the city center. He seizes the Capitoline, cuts off the water supply. And he did his best to seem reluctant, especially in public, wringing his hands and such. He seemed genuinely conflicted. And it's not that he was happy to lead this crackdown against his old friends. But they really left him no choice, hadn't they? The men surrender. Marius locks them up in the Curia. In the Senate House overnight to await trial. But in the night, some men climb up on top of the Curia and they dislodge roof tiles and start throwing them down on the captives and they murder Saturninus and Glaucia, still in their official insignia of office. No one ever proved who did it. And why would anyone in leadership want to? The drama was over. There was a satisfying conclusion. But yet, All this was deeply disturbing. On the one hand, Marius was relieved to be rid of these men who knew no moderation, who were luring away his support base among the country soldiers, who probably wouldn't have hesitated, now that you mention it, to get him out of the way once they were confident enough. Still, this was the first time in more than 20 years that Roman blood was spilled in the forum in a civil conflict since the days of Gaius Gracchus. Two candidates for the consulship were dead, one of them a praetor in office, as well as a tribune whose body was sacrosanct by virtue of his office. And by the end of it, Marius had done an impressive job of salvaging the situation for himself. He'd done his duty in the eyes of the Senate, and certainly he'd placated the moderates. But to the urban plebs, for all their disappointment in Saturninus... Well, did he really deserve to die without trial? Nobody really accused Marius of calling the hit, but he was implicated in this bloodshed. It was his responsibility to secure the building, after all. So, was Marius the people's champion then, or was he just another pillar of the establishment? On the surface, the next decade was much quieter. Marius settled into a role he felt more comfortable in when he was in the city, the quiet elder statesman, exerting his influence behind the curtains of whatever show was going on on the stage of the Senate or the forum or the courts. And he'd acquired by now a deep bench of supporters, men he had brought to prominence, whether by promoting them through the ranks of the army or supporting them in elections doing favors, pulling strings. He had a house built right near the Forum, so it would be easy for his clients and protégés to come to him. And he preferred to let these younger guys fight his political fights for him in public. He would pick the causes and coach them through the tactics. He would set the grand strategy for his faction. And there was, of course, talk about the town of old man Marius's sun setting, his glory days being in the past, that whenever he wasn't seen around town, he was probably just enjoying retirement on one of his lavish country estates. They were fools. They had no idea. And they hadn't seen anything yet. Right? Still, as he approached age 60, how much time did he have left? So when the Senate eventually voted to recall Metellus from exile, after Marius did all he could to prevent it and failed, he decided that now was a good time for him to get out of town for some research. He announced that he wanted to finally fulfill a vow that he had made before a battle to a certain Oriental goddess, the great mother Sibylle, who had lots of temples in Asia Minor, and so he departed for the east For Asia. But what Marius was really doing was scoping out the East, collecting intelligence, making contacts. Rome had a province called Asia, basically consisting of the western coast of Turkey today and its hinterland. It was acquired relatively recently. It was the furthest east that Rome had come, and there were tensions. Italian businessmen were getting filthy rich in the province of Asia. Some of them were Roman equestrians, some of them not even Roman citizens at all. These guys were some of the core members of Marius' network, and they were the ones who held various government contracts in Asia, most especially the contracts to collect the taxes. They were called publicans. Very little oversight. It didn't have to be a dirty business in theory, but it often was, especially when it was lucrative. Savvy Italians backed by fear of Rome, unhappy, over-extracted locals, and some of you may be familiar with the story of the publican and the Pharisee from the New Testament, and tax collectors were really loathed. And then there were these neighboring kings who perceived all of this. Some of them were client kings, But to most of them, Rome seemed very far away these days indeed. Detached, distracted. It was a tinderbox. And Marius, with all his experience in Spain and Africa, may have been one of the first Romans who saw the writing on the wall. Take Numidia in North Africa. It was once like much of Asia Minor. Little oversight, independent client kings, some tax farming in areas Rome directly controlled. But now, it effectively had a permanent Roman garrison, Roman military colonies, right in their neighborhood. The Romans had a much tighter grip, deeper into Africa now. And in Asia, Marius was happy to see his businessman friends get rich, but it was abusive, and it couldn't last forever. Wasn't it inevitable that Rome should control these areas more directly? For the sticklers, wouldn't that actually be the best way to curb abuses? But more importantly, wasn't it the divine destiny of Rome to simply rule these people? But for Rome to take more control in Asia, they'd have to be faced with a real war. Well, one king in particular, Mithridates, the king of Pontus, was extremely energetic and ambitious, and he'd been pushing his boundaries further and further out at the expense of his neighbors. He was very popular, and Marius saw in him maybe another potential Jugurtha. But instead of the rugged, often scrubby tribal badlands of North Africa, or Spain for that matter, Asia was filthy rich. Its great cities had been accumulating wealth for half a millennium since the days of Croesus and Cyrus the Great, king of the Persians. Marius was fascinated. A crisis in the East would be the opportunity of a lifetime. For the right man, someone who really understood the big picture, the possibilities for both business and for empire, well, it was potentially greater than anything he had yet done maybe than any Roman had done. But he was also patient. He returned home to wait for the right opportunity. Asia, however, did not turn out to be the biggest tinderbox Marius would deal with. He and the rest of the Romans would realize all too late it was right in their backyard, In different circumstances, if they had been born Roman citizens, many of Marius' friends might have attained to the status of a Metellus or a Scipio or, who knows, a Gaius Marius. Instead, they were just Italian allies. They fought in the Roman army as young men, and as they reached their prime, many of them, while they couldn't vote, they couldn't really take active roles in political life, form effective interest groups, see policies through, so they turned to money-making. But the bigger their business interests got, the more sensitive they became to Roman domestic and especially foreign policy. The futures and fortunes that they had built were all subject to the whim of their Roman overlords. Now, as Marius saw it, he was the man best positioned to help them, not just the rich ones, but the common soldiers among the Italian non-citizen allies too, the regular guy. He was the Italian's man from the bottom all the way up to the top. He could speak their languages, he knew their local lore, he honored their weird, rustic versions of the gods, and he was always looking for ways to do them favors. He managed to get three Italians enrolled as citizens in every veteran colony he founded, These were how his military land grants were mostly organized, into colonies. And three per city was nice, and they became very good friends with Marius. But it was a drop in the bucket. The other Italians weren't satisfied. Every five years, Rome would conduct a census. And they would elect two censors for the year to do it. And the censors besides being able to eject people from the Senate for licentious behavior, they had the power to add and subtract citizens from the registers. Marius managed to help two of his friends get elected to that office in 97 BC. One of them was Marcus Antonius, the consul from 99. And it wasn't hard to persuade these men to adapt more lenient policies on adding new citizens to the register. And so here and there, gradually, many wealthy and prominent Italians became Romans over the course of that census. But then there was a pushback in the following years. The Optimates see that Marius and his faction are the main winners in all this because these rich Italians immediately join the equestrian ranks and they become staunch Marians. And so the optimates have laws passed to counteract inappropriate additions to the citizen roles. This Marcus Antonius, the censor, he's also a famous orator. He defends one of Marius's Italian clients in a major trial. They're trying to strip the guy of citizenship. It's very contentious. Marius personally speaks up in the courtroom and defends the man's military record. The guy's name is Matrinius. And word gets around to all of Italy about this case. It's a real sensation. It's a legal test. If Matrinius gets deprived of his citizenship, the precedent would mean hundreds, thousands maybe even, of prominent Italians are probably going to get kicked out of their Roman citizenship status too. And Marius and Antonius win, but it's hardly reassuring to these Italians Even if they get their coveted citizenship, is it potentially revocable? Will it have to submit to the risk of a fickle Roman jury in order to be ratified as part of some political game against rival Roman factions? They were exasperated. This was existential. And sometimes Marius seemed preoccupied with other matters— there were more political trials against Marius's younger protégés. The Optimates were trying to undermine him. And Marius had plenty of energy for orchestrating political counterattacks against his enemies. Old Rutilius Rufus, the Stoic, was by now a major Optimate figurehead. And he had opposed Marius before on various issues. And now, he's just finished taking a tour of duty in Asia as assistant governor, and he and his superior governed with admirable impartiality, as the senators keep commenting, rooted out corruption, and so on. But in this process, Rutilius Rufus had seriously damaged the interests of the Italian businessmen, the publicans. And one of Marius's guys prosecutes Rufus for corruption, of all things, It's widely regarded as nonsensical. But nonetheless, Rufus gets convicted. Because, according to an old law of Gracchus, the equestrians are the ones who get to staff the jury in corruption trials. Everybody sees this as payback. For Marius, though, it isn't personal. You could hardly even prove that prosecuting Rufus was his idea. And anyway... He was simply standing in the way of progress. And so Rufus spent the rest of his days in exile in Asia, writing his own version of Roman history. And of course, he wrote it in Greek. And Marius had his mind on many other matters, personal rivalries. One man in particular was building a name for himself around opposition to Marius. It was his old mentee, Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Sulla was becoming a darling of the Optimates, and he knew how to tap into the jealousy and resentment the nobles felt toward Marius and his populares faction. King Bocus, the Numidian, was the Romans' new ally in North Africa since the end of the war with Jugurtha, and he was a personal friend of Sulla, and he wanted to make a gift to the Roman people. Sulla instructed him to commission a gilded statue group to be placed prominently on the Capitoline Hill with the Senate's approval, depicting the goddess Victory and next to her a historical scene in which Bocchus was depicted handing over Jugurtha to Sulla. Sulla was implicitly claiming the credit for the victory in the Jugurthine War. He even had a ring made depicting the same event and he would show it off at parties. Oh, it was the talk of the town among Roman high society. It was extremely irritating. But all of Marius's plans for patiently integrating the Italians on his own terms end up getting violently disrupted from an unexpected quarter in 91 BC. It all started with an optimate-backed young tribune of the plebs named Livius Drusus, from the Gens Livia, the family of the Liviuses, that is, the grand old family, and he was actually the son of a former optimate-backed tribune who thwarted Gaius Gracchus back in the day. That guy, who had the same name, Marcus Livius Drusus, the elder, actually went on to become consul. It was a pretty good career strategy. And this younger Drusus, well, he asked the simple question, why should it be Marius and his faction that get seen as the champions of our Italian allies that get to be their patrons? Why not the conservative party in the Senate? If the conservatives could detach the Italians from the Marians, and not just detach the Italians, but the equestrians too, well, they could get the upper hand. Drusus had an ambitious and complicated legislative agenda for trying to radically reorient the alliances in Roman politics. Marius had to hand it to him. It was ingenious, really. Get the urban plebs of Rome to concede to mass grants of citizenship for the Italians by giving them land grants in Italy, and then the Italian veterans cede control of some of their public land in exchange for citizenship. And then, because the Senate and the equestrians might have their votes diluted by the addition of new voting citizens, you get the equestrians to back the program by adding 300 new members of the equestrian order to the Senate, and on and on and on. And it looked great on paper. It was very clever, almost mathematical. And Drusus's program was a genuine threat to the Marians. If Drusus could grant large numbers of Italian allies citizenship, it would take away Marius's biggest lever in politics. And young Drusus was publicly backed by some senior Optimate members in the Senate, and he was clearly getting coached behind the scenes by them too. The problem with their whole scheme was that it was at least a four-way deal circle you know, party A makes a concession to party B, who makes a concession to party C, who does it for D, who finally makes a concession to party A. And it was such a complex network of political arbitrage that if any single part of the deal wasn't executed, some party could get left out and angry and make enough noise to spoil the whole thing. And that's exactly what happened. And Drusus ends up having to force the issue a little bit. He has one of the consuls dragged off to prison with a bloody nose one day. And his support starts to erode. And some angry Italians from the north simply refuse to give up their land. Friends of that bloody-nosed consul, in fact. And they come down to town to protest these new laws that Drusus is passing, allegedly in their favor. And one day... As Drusus is dealing with a crowd of petitioners at his administrative office, he winds up with a knife in his guts. And as the crowds parted, he looked around and asked, who stabbed him? As he slowly lost consciousness and passed away. And nobody ever figured out who did it. And there were so many discontents in every party that it was impossible for the popular narrative to even settle on a suspect. But the death of Drusus instead of being the end of conflict, becomes the very opposite. Because even though Drusus had made himself hated from nearly every quarter in Rome, he actually had gathered major support from the Italian countryside, and most of the top politicians in Rome had underestimated how much. Marius had been urging patience among his Italian friends. Your time will come, just trust the process. But after what happened to Drusus, the Italians were done with patience. They were done being the political pawns of Roman politicians. They decide to take their fate into their own hands. And so a number of important allied Italian cities secretly exchange oaths and hostages among themselves. Italian men who've led divisions of soldiers in the Roman army, in Spain and Gaul and Africa, men who have amassed fortunes doing the business of empire, who now have the means to finance something truly daring They start meeting in conclave, laying plans, analyzing the map of Italy. There hasn't been a war on Italian soil for more than a hundred years since Hannibal's invasion. All the living knowledge of strategic strongholds and pinch points and military routes and vulnerabilities in these areas, it all kind of died off in previous generations. History had to be consulted. How would the Romans be coming at them? What other cities would join in the revolts once the core rebels had scored some victories? Where would their new capital be? Meanwhile, the Romans are so busy with their own civil conflicts that they fail to notice any of this going on. And by the time someone did notice, the Italians have been planning things for months. happened at the city of Asculum in central Italy in a region called Picenum which is on the eastern side of Italy on the other side of the mountains from Rome late autumn 91 BC a roman visitor to Asculum notices something fishy going on he figures out that a hostage a young man from Asculum is being sent to another town what's this a pledge of good faith Rome's allies all had one Diplomatic relationship with Rome only, not with each other. What's going on? The visitor reports it to the local Roman governor, a praetor. The governor comes right away. He arrives at Asculum right in the middle of a religious festival. He confronts the city leaders about the intelligence he's gotten and he demands answers. And the city leaders go and talk amongst themselves for a little bit, and then they turn right around and murder the governor and his legate and then they go on to slaughter every Roman there in the town. The people of Asculum send word out to their allies, the rebellion has begun. And very quickly, great tribes of Italian peoples have mustered their armies, they've kicked out or killed the local Roman officials and citizens, and they're digging in to defend their new Italian Republic. Marci, Pilegni, Frentani, Byzantines, Lucanians, Samnites. Roman consuls used to call out these names and general musters of the army and get thundering cheers in response. And now these peoples have elected their own consuls and they intend to make their own destiny. And the Latin word for these allies is socii, and this is why it became known as the social war, the war with the allies. And the Romans including Marius, are taken completely off guard by all this, and at first they're really struggling to understand how this all could have happened. The Italians seem like they're outnumbered at first, so outnumbered that many people are thinking how could they have revolted without encouragement somehow from within Rome, and so there's a series of political trials, people suspected of treacherous dealings with the Italians and maybe it was an indication of how sick the Roman state had become, that their first response was to turn on each other. But in the spring of the next year, the Romans put aside their differences to focus on simply defeating their enemies. And what they are now, lately, realizing is an existential struggle. They spent generations training up the deadliest, most efficient and feared military machine in the Mediterranean world, now large portions of it are trained back on them. The Italian rebels muster some 120,000 troops, and an overwhelming number of them, including their commanders, are battle-hardened veterans, intimately familiar with Roman tactics and weaponry. The Romans scramble to assemble armies, assign commands, they send out both of the consuls, but it's hard to cover all the bases with new defectors popping up like mushrooms all over Italy, And so they call up many of their best veteran commanders to duty, including Marius. By the end of this conflict, more than a half dozen top Roman commanders and magistrates are dead, killed in battle or through treachery, consuls, praetors, current and former. There were so many sieges and counterstrikes, pitched battles and ambushes, and several cold-blooded massacres of citizens and soldiers alike. On both sides, some Roman sources put the total death toll at 300,000 people. It was absolutely horrific. But Marius scored some important victories. He faced off against Popidius Silo himself. Silo was probably the greatest leader of the Italians from the Marci tribe. The war is sometimes called the Marcian War. They were the most influential tribe. And Marius even ended up at one point fighting against the Marcy with Sulla beside him as one of his own lieutenants. But there were a couple of occasions in the war where Marius failed to engage, or failed to pursue the enemy with the supreme vigor and efficiency that he was known for. Or at least, that's the narrative that starts to circulate. Marius the old man. Or worse, Marius the friend of the Italians. And as it happened also with the Athenian general Alcibiades, his very reputation for effectiveness came to count against him. Because any time Marius failed to live up to the image, it was taken as a sign of questionable loyalty or corruption, and there were plenty of powerful people happy to help that narrative about Marius circulate. And whether the allegations were true or not, it must have been very difficult for him to fight to the death with people, some of whom had been his clients once, his support base, who had legitimate grievances. On so many occasions, Marius might have been fighting against some of the very men he had recruited and led to victory in previous wars. While Marius ends up resigning his command late in the war, he cites his adverse health, He was in his mid-60s by then, after all, but it's a major loss of face. And also, not a few of his moderate supporters in the Senate are starting to distance themselves from him. Marius refuses to quit the political game, but it looks like doors are closing all around him. Meanwhile, there's one man who has no qualms about massacring Italian rebels, Sulla. As famous politicians and former consuls suffer setbacks and defeats, Sulla is adding victory after victory to his winning streak, and he is now emerging as the foremost Roman commander of his time. By 89 BC, Sulla is commanding the siege of Nola, which was one of the major strongholds of the resistance in Campania near Naples, southern Italy, and he has six legions under his command at Nola, maybe about 25,000 men. Now, there are a couple of things that we need to note here that are part of the background to why things got much uglier for Rome soon after all this. Earlier that year, the Romans, in their desperation, take two drastic measures. For the first time in Roman history, they decide to allow freedmen, that is, former slaves, to enlist in the army Even though Romans liked to incentivize good behavior among slaves with the prospect of freedom and they had ways of integrating them as new members of society, still former slaves were considered by some to be of questionable loyalty, but these were desperate times. Another drastic thing the Senate does is they sponsor a law that grants citizenship to all allies who will fight on their side in subduing the rebellion. And this works for its intended aim. It discourages other disgruntled cities from joining the rebel cause, and some defect back to the Roman side. And so these measures are starting to turn the tide. By mid-89, it looks like there's little hope for the cause of the rebel Italian Republic, though there are many that are continuing to hold out. But amidst these new inclusive measures, all of these new Romans are making their way into the armies, fighting on the various fronts against the Italian rebels. They're fighting against people who look and talk very much like them, have the same or similar customs, gods, etc. And they are, of course, making their way into Sulla's army at Nola. And Sulla was one of the few people to realize, even before Marius realized it, that this changed everything. Up to this point in the story, we've seen civic unrest, violent disruptions, the kettle boiling over now and then, but the violence has always been somehow defused. And now we've seen war with the Allies, the social war, but this wasn't civil war. If anything, it brought the quarreling parties at Rome together in a common cause, but the internal tensions were still there. What was it that brought about the first great Roman civil war, kicking off half a century of unprecedented internecine bloodshed and the strongest polity that the West had ever seen. Well, here's how it began. Towards the end of the year 89, Sulla leaves his siege at Nola in the care of some of his officers, and he comes back north to Rome to finally make his own bid for the consulship. He's got an incredible war record, all the connections, and he wins easily. But Sulla happened to return to the city at a pivotal moment because it happened to coincide with Marius' greatest chance for a comeback. War was breaking out in the east, across the seas. It's one of Marius' longtime schemes finally coming to fruition, or at least it was a dream of his, It wasn't clear whether he was responsible at all, as usual, but one of his close associates, Manius Aquilius, as ambassador to the east, to the region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he had provoked the king of Pontus, Mithridates, and let's save the details for the biography of Sulla about all that, but Mithridates responds by declaring war, and he sweeps into Roman territory in their province of Asia, and again that's western Turkey. And maybe Manius Aquilius wasn't expecting Mithridates to respond so quickly and decisively. The timing wasn't great for Rome. The social war was very much going on and Mithridates knew this of course. But now the Romans have little choice but war if they want to keep the rich province of Asia under their control and everybody's savings are exposed. There's all kinds of investments made in Asia, all kinds of money lent out, public, private. It's terrifying to think of losing Asia for the rich in Rome. So, who should lead the war? A war to save long-standing Roman business interests? A war that could bring in the riches of Croesus and all that glory? Well. Of course, Marius puts his name forward, but the Senate assigns the command to Sulla, the consul. Marius goes back into the shadows, and he starts inviting people to his nice house right next to the forum for some intimate conversations. People who were still loyal, who hadn't suddenly become too busy for his company. And a few new faces, too. One of the people he talks to was another young tribune of the plebs for the year. His name was Sulpicius. And Sulpicius was actually a kid from a good family, a friend of a lot of the optimists. He even prosecuted one of Marius' friends years ago. So what's he doing at Marius's house? Well, you see, when the Senate had made a mass decree of citizenship to the Italians at the height of the war... They had a creative plan for enrolling them into the voting registers. The Romans voted by groups, and laws were passed, or candidates elected, based on the number of groups that voted for them. Sort of comparable to the US electoral college system. You win a majority in, say, 18 of the 35 groups, you win the election, no matter how many citizens were in that group. It was one of their strategies for weighting the votes of certain citizens heavier than others, such as the rich or the country folk. And so the idea was that the Senate had just to group all the new Italian citizens, a huge number of citizens, into a very small number of new voting groups. They were called tribes, sort of gerrymandered them safely so that they wouldn't have too much influence. Sulpicius, though, was proposing instead to distribute them evenly into the existing tribes. It would mean that they would have substantial influence going forward. And the Italians love the idea, of course. And so do the Roman senators who have a support base among the Italians, like Marius and his friends. Sulpicius though, at first he tries to convince his optimate patrons that this is the best thing for the Republic. And if the optimates do it right, it could serve their interests too. Drop it, kid, they say. Drusus tried. You think you're better than him? And so, long story short, they end up driving Sulpicius into Marius' arms. And Marius tells him, well, it's a good idea, but this will be tough. And Marius will help Sulpicius pass his law, but he will need something in return. All in good time. And so early the next year, with Sulla Consul, Sulpicius calls the measure to a vote. And the Optimates summon their entourages, and they protest, and they mob the voting grounds. But Sulpicius has now got his own muscle, 3,000 thugs that he's calling his anti-Senate. And there's a face-off. It's threatening to get violent, and the consuls... Sulla and his colleague, well, they together declare a suspension of public business. They have that right as consuls, actually to effectively declare a national holiday on a whim, which would mean that no public business conducted on that day is valid. But this only escalates things, and violence breaks out anyway, and chaos spreads through the streets. The other consul's son gets stabbed to death. The kid was actually married to Sulla's daughter. And at this amazing moment, Sulla, by a strange twist of fate, finds himself running from Sulpicius' armed gangs, and he flees into Marius' house near the Forum for refuge. And considering the aftermath, you have to wonder, what was that scene like? What was Marius thinking, knowing what was about to happen? Well, Sulla slips out when the coast is clear, and he decides that, in the circumstances, it's not worth trying to fight Sulpicius and his citizenship law. It's dangerous to stay in the city. And the next day, he lifts the suspension of public business, and he leaves immediately to go join his army in the south. The social war is wrapping up, and he's just going to head off and fight Mithridates in the east, and come back and sort it out when he returns. So he thinks. And at Rome... Sulpicius' law passes in a plebiscite. And now, with Sulla gone, Marius makes his move. He calls in his favor. He has Sulpicius propose a law removing the command of the war with Mithridates from Sulla to Marius. Not so different from what he had done with Metellus, was it? Well, many elder statesmen in the senate still disapproved of that incident with getting the war with Eugurtha reassigned, and many other moderates in the Senate, they see that this was actually quite different from that occasion. Among many other factors, Marius was consul then, at least. This was crossing a much harder line and insulting a much more energetic man. Unfortunately, Marius isn't listening to the moderates anymore, He's barely on speaking terms with some of his old allies. And here was a chance for Marius to recover the legacy that had been waning since the Social War. Really, it had been waning since the Cimbrian Wars, hadn't it? Friends had left him. The younger generation barely knew why he was so special. And the temptation to try to get it all back, to exceed even his greatest achievements so far, it was just too great. The plebiscite is called, and with all the new citizens packing the voting tribes, Marius's citizens, many of them, many still loyal despite recent disappointments, the law passes. Marius to command the war with Mithridates. What was Marius really thinking? Was this command so desirable? Did he somehow deserve it so much more That it was worth forcing his will harder than he ever had? Well, next, Marius sends envoys to go bring the news to Sulla. They're supposed to take over the army from Sulla, await Marius's command. Then Marius starts exercising in the public parade grounds, the campus martius. He's doing horseback drills, he's throwing spears. He wants everyone to see that even though he's put on a few pounds over the years... He's still got the fight in him. And you wonder if Marius was training in the field that day when he got the news. The envoys are dead. Sulla is marching on Rome with his army. 20,000 men. It was unbelievable. Marius never thought. Nobody ever thought. That Sulla would take that step, that his soldiers would follow him, but these weren't your usual Roman soldiers then, were they? Poor men, Italian country folk, freedmen. Many of those men have spent more time with Sulla now than they have in the city of Rome. These are men to whom concepts like the dignity of the Senate and the supremacy of the Roman Constitution, the most maiorum, the race publica were abstractions at best. Was it possible that the rules of the game had changed? That it was a different game now? Hasty embassies go out from Rome to try to stop Sulla, reason with him, all return in failure. Sulla's messengers are going around the city. Sulla intends to liberate Rome from its tyrants. Within days he's reached the city walls. Now, according to Roman law, no citizen was allowed to bear arms within the sacred boundary of Rome, the city limits. They called it the pomerium, basically coincided with the city walls. And even though there were violent scuffles in the forum before, you know, people carrying concealed daggers, that was illegal, and those were criminals. And they would always have to fade back into the shadows somehow. But now, in broad daylight... Under the shadow of the very eagles that Marius had made the Roman standard, under the supposedly lawful authority of a highest Roman magistrate, a consul, Sulla's soldiers force open the Esquiline Gate, and they march into the city, daggers, spears, swords, and all, pelted by roof tiles like an enemy invader. Sulla threatens to burn all the buildings down, and then the roof tiles stop and Marius and Sulpicius scramble to try to mount a resistance on the Esquiline Hill. They even free some slaves and slap armor and swords on them, but they're no match for Sulla's veteran city sackers. And once he's got control of the center of Rome, Sulla calls a meeting of the Senate, and he marches to the Curia, and addressing the men in the Senate with his troops outside, Sulla proposes a vote to decree Marius and Sulpicius enemies of the state and condemn them to death, together with ten other of Marius's closest associates, including Marius' own son. Maybe if old Metellus Numidicus were still alive, he would have objected, stood for principle. Skyvala objected, that was Rutilius's mentor, no great ally of Marius. But there were so many of Marius's former friends who did nothing, and so many others, many of them who had Dined at Marius' house, been at his wedding, shared his intimate counsels, fought alongside him in great wars. They now vote death to Marius. What were the rules now? Sulpicius tries to hide, and he's found and executed immediately. But Marius runs. Marius rides down to the port of Rome at Ostia with a few companions. There were some close calls, but a friend gives him a boat and sends him off. Marius is headed for Africa. He has friends there, thousands of former soldiers. But the loner boat isn't a proper ship, and they they have to hug the coast as they head south. The sea is stormy. Marius is getting seasick. They land the boat to get refuge and to restock. And, as they're out foraging in the countryside, they meet some local herdsmen. These kids have seen armed men riding around in a hurry, looking for a heavy-set elderly man named Gaius Marius, huh. friends of Sulla. Marius and his companions they go hide in a nearby forest. They sleep on the ground for the night. no fires. They make their way back to the shore in the morning and Marius never short of a story, even in these dark moments. As he's walking along the beach, he's trying to find ways to cheer up his friends, and he tells them now a prophecy, an omen that appeared to him once when he was a little boy, living in the honest countryside near Old Arpenum. An eagle's nest fell out of a tree one day and landed in his lap. And in that nest were seven baby eagles, His parents were amazed. Seven eaglets. They consulted the local seer, who told them that this son was going to be a most illustrious man, destined to receive the highest command and power seven times. And Marius, well, he had only been consul six times so far, you see. So he was putting his faith in this old prophecy, and they should too. A seventh consulship was on the horizon. Plutarch points out here that eagles only lay two eggs at a time, max, so the omen is clearly fabricated. But he notes that it's generally agreed that Marius told these tales while he was on his escape flight. And as they're walking along the beach, they spot some merchant vessels sailing close to the shore, just as a band of horsemen crest over a nearby hill. And when they see the unmistakable silhouette of Marius, they spur their horses. The companions dive into the water to swim to the boats. Then Marius has trouble. He can barely swim. Two slaves jump out and come hold his head above water with difficulty. And the horsemen arrive at the shore and they start shouting threats just as Marius is being helped into one of the boats. Surrender that fugitive! The sailors look unsure. Marius tells them who he really is. He supplicates them with prayers to the gods and tears in his eyes. And so the sailors reluctantly refuse to give him up. And the horsemen ride away in frustration. And they go on a little ways. Marius's companions are on the other ship. And that boat sails off ahead to a nearby island. And then the captain on Marius's boat approaches him and Tells him that, well, my lord, the sea is very choppy. See, look, the wind is blowing in the wrong direction. This boat can't take it like the other one. It's not good for sailing. But, uh, my lord, the winds usually change in the afternoon. How about we put my lord on the shore to rest and regain his strength while we wait for the winds to change? And Marius agrees. But once they have him on the shore, they have him lay down in the grass to rest They simply abandoned him. It was a trick. And here's Plutarch. Thus, forsaken of all men, he lay a long time speechless on the shore, but recovered himself at last and tried to walk along, the lack of any path making his progress laborious. He made his way through deep marshes and ditches full of mud and water until he came to the hut of an old man who got his living from the lakes At his feet, Marius fell down and besought him to save and help a man who, in case he escaped his present perils, would recompense him beyond all his hopes. Then the man, who either knew Marius from of old or saw that in his face which won the regard due to superior rank, told him that if he merely wanted to rest, the cabin would suffice, but that if he was wandering about trying to escape pursuers, he could be hidden in a place that was more quiet, End quote. And this old guy leads him by the side of the river next to his hut, and he covers him up in a mass of reeds and sticks. And Marius gets real quiet, but soon he hears commotion in the hut. Some men are there, threatening this old man for hiding an enemy of Rome, And Marius strips off his clothes and he slips into the water and tries to stay quiet and hidden, but they find him. And so, out of the swamp, they drag the vanquisher of the Cimbri, the savior of the Republic, Gaius Marius, naked and covered with slime. And they tie him up and they lead him to the nearby city of Minterno and they hand him over to the town council The officials put him under house arrest. It was actually in the home of an estranged wife of an old client of his. And the townsfolk have, of course, received official orders from Rome that Marius is to be executed immediately, if found. And they hold a meeting, and they resolve to obey the orders and put Marius to death. They call for volunteers to do the deed, no hands, Names of potential candidates for the job are called, but everyone refuses. And so the story goes, they find an old Cimbrian warrior, a tough guy, who was resident there for some business, and they put a sword in his hand and they send him into the house to finish it. And he opens the door to the room that Marius was staying in, it's dark, but we are told that the warrior... Saw the eyes of Marius sparkle as though there was a flame in them. And he heard a voice in the darkness So then, do you have the guts to kill Gaius Marius? And the man backs away and he runs out of the house. And the townsfolk are, you know, standing there as he gets out. And he looks at them and says, I can't kill Gaius Marius and the townsfolk stunned and then ashamed that this barbarian, a former enemy of his, should have more compassion than them and more reverence for the man who saved Rome. They resolved to let him go and let the gods decide his fate. They even escort him down to the port and a friend of his furnishes a ship and Marius sails to Africa. Marius lands in the vicinity of Carthage, the once-proud city, once Rome's greatest foe, that his first commander, Scipio Aemilianus, had reduced to rubble nearly 50 years ago. Now it's located in a Roman province. And here's what Plutarch says happened next.
1: The Roman governor of Africa at this time was Sextilius, a man who had received neither good nor ill at the hands of Marius but whom, as it was expected, pity alone would move to give him aid. Hardly, however, had Marius landed with a few companions, when an official met him, stood directly in front of him, and said, Sextilius the governor forbids thee, Marius, to set foot in Africa, and if thou disobeyest, he declares that he will uphold the decrees of the senate and treat thee as an enemy of Rome. When he heard this, Marius was rendered speechless by grief and indignation, and for a long time kept quiet looking sternly at the official. Then, when asked by him what he had to say and what answer he would make to the governor, he answered with a deep groan. Tell him then that thou hast seen Gaius Marius, a fugitive, seated amid the ruins of Carthage. And it was not inaptly that he compared the fate of that city with his own reversal of fortune.
0: Well, it could have been worse. He could be dead. So after making his displeasure known, Marius retreats to a barren island off the coast of Tunisia called Kirkenna to regroup, and he's soon joined there by other associates of his and his son, Gaius Marius the Younger. And on that desert island, Marius had a lot of time to reflect. He had just seen the greatest city in the world fall in a military coup, There had been disturbances before, but never a Roman army capturing Rome. What had happened? Was Marius to blame? Yes, perhaps he regretted the plebiscite in retrospect. But how could Marius be the one to blame? When Sulla was the man who had broken the most fundamental rule of all, that a Roman is a Roman and you should not wage open war on your own countrymen. Opimius was hated and eventually driven into exile because he broke that rule in murdering Gaius Gracchus. Saturninus and Glaucia failed because they tried to literally destroy their enemies. Marius didn't want to destroy the Optimates. He wanted to beat them at the political game to extract from them that most important thing in the world, respect, not kill them. And this is how they repay him? This is the respect they show him in return after he had respected their laws, their sacred ancient custom, the Mos maiorum. Marius didn't want to break the law. He loved the law. It was laws that had raised him up from obscurity to glory. And now the august Senate has voted a death sentence to their greatest member, to the greatest respecter of the laws, Marcus Antonius, The Caesar brothers, his kinsmen, Licinius Crassus, and that snake, Catullus. They'd all turned against him. They cast their votes. So that was where things ended up. But soon, reports start coming back about what's happening in Rome. It's starting to look like Marius isn't out of the game yet. Sulla abrogated Sulpicius laws and then left the city, He went east to fight Mithridates. Before that, he allowed the consuls to be elected for the following year. How nice. The illusion of freedom. One of them was Octavius, an optimate, a real stickler for the rules and propriety. And the other was a man named Cinna. This was promising. Cinna was in Marius's orbit. Not that they were all that close. Cinna was from a top family, old money, old glory. But Cinna was like-minded with the late Drusus and the late Sulpicius. He really got the Italian problem. And as soon as Sulla left town, Sinnna started pushing to have Sulpicius's Italian voter registration laws passed again. And on the day that they were set to vote, there was, predictably, a riotous face-off between opposing factions in the Forum. And the consul Octavius, a man of... Famous religious scruples, ironically, led troops into the Forum to crack down on Cinna and his supporters, and he drove them out of the city. They killed hundreds in the process. After that, dozens of prominent men left the city in fear. And these are events that we've narrated in more detail in the life of Sertorius, who was there long before he became the greatest Roman rebel. Cinna is going around Italy now, raising new conscripts from the newly enrolled Italian citizens of Rome. He's planning to take back the city, sulla style if he has to. And Marius must have been imagining all along what he was going to do if he got back. Well, Marius gathers his friends on the desert island of Kirkenna, and he brings them up to speed. They get word to the many Marian veteran colonies in North Africa. The Republic needs you in its darkest hour. And they sail for Italy, for the north, where Marius has a lot of supporters. And after they land in Tuscany, Marius marches south. And his little army grows along the way as he gathers people to him. Some soldiers are old veterans of his. Most, though, are new recruits from among the hopeful new Italians, sturdy farmers. Okay, maybe a few were shepherd boys who could barely grow a beard. But Marius could work with that. They had potential. And if he picked up a few freedmen and freed a few slaves even along the way and armed them, well, these were desperate times, weren't they? And soon Marius receives a formal invitation from Cinna. Come, Marius, help us to liberate Rome from its oppressors. Excellent. Of course, how could Cinna decline to invite Marius after Marius had, well, sent letters to him, letting Cinna know that he was in the neighborhood. And he meets Cinna and the party representing the legitimate consul, as they were thinking of themselves. He meets them outside of Rome. And there is young Sertorius, one of his former lieutenants, who went on that spy mission against the Cimbrian Gaul so many years ago. Sertorius served under Marius in the social war, he looked uneasy, somehow, not entirely happy to see his old commander. Well, the rest were. Besides these guys, all of Marius's old crew was there, Papirius Carbo, Flavius Fimbria, many others. The exiles were reunited, and Marius came dressed for the occasion. He hadn't cut his hair since he left. It had been something like a year, and Cinna had promoted him to proconsul, and he tried to give him a proper robe of office and suit of armor, Marius declined. He preferred his rags and his filth. For, as Plutarch says, he wished that men should pity him, but with his appeal for compassion, there was mingled the look that was natural to him, and now more terrifying than ever. And through his downcast mien, there flashed a spirit which had been not humbled, but made savage by his reverses. And so the senators who remain in the city and Octavius, the other consul, they tried desperately to raise forces, to send out calls for help to Sulla in Asia, to the younger Metellus, who was fighting a bitter war to the death with Samnite rebels in the south. But no, it was impossible for anyone to get away. No help was coming to Rome from afar. One general, a mercurial ex-consul named Pompey Strabo, who was actually the father of Pompey the Great. He waited on the sidelines until the very last minute to declare his loyalties, and he ended up siding with the party in the city. So that gave them enough hope to refuse to surrender. And now Marius, with the military experience he has, there's no question in his eyes who should run this unpleasant operation and Cinna wisely defers to him as the de facto commander. So now, with his enemies in the city, and his most violent partisans with him, cheering him on, Marius engineers a merciless siege on the city of Rome. He pursued it with an energy unlike anything he had felt since the Cimbrian Wars, with all of the cold precision of a master general who had sieged and sacked dozens of strongholds, though never one whose weaknesses he knew so intimately. The current regime at Rome had exiled its greatest citizen, its savior. Not that he should be surprised. Hadn't they done the same to Camillus? Hadn't the Athenians exiled Themistocles and Aristides? But no, those were legal decrees of exile, not putting a bounty on a man's head. This was much worse. Marius narrowly escaped being murdered several times, his friends too, and everything that he has heard about the way that they drove Cinna out of town confirmed what he already knew. The current regime were lawless tyrants. Marius cuts off all supplies to Rome. He sends Sertorius to cut off communication from the Tiber River as it entered the city to the north, and he himself takes control of the seaport route. Rome's population was heavily dependent on regular grain imports. Leading citizens of Ostia, the port of Rome, had turned their back on him when he was fleeing for his life, refused to help him. And now, Ostia resisted Marius. He sacked it like a fort of Spanish brigands. He let his troops do whatever they wanted. Other towns in the area tried to sneak supplies to Rome, Antium, Lanuvium, Eurekia sacked without hesitation. Facing Sertorius, Pompey Strabo put up the kind of resistance that showed he was hedging his bets. But after months of siege and confinement and famine, a plague was spreading through Rome and Pompey was camped by the gates. He caught the plague and he died. Well, some say he was struck by a lightning bolt, so that's also possible. Either way, after his death, his army melted away. Octavius and the Senate finally accept that they have no hope of victory. They send an embassy out to Cinna, and Cinna is sitting there on his consular throne, the cural chair, on an elevated platform, as was traditional. And the senatorial ambassadors approach and explain, they no longer cherish any hope of favorable terms. They offer their unconditional surrender. All they ask is that Cinna should refrain from bloodshed and murder when he enters the city. They ask him to swear an oath that he will do this. Sinna says to them, "'There's no need for oaths. I'll do my best. I will not willingly be responsible for any massacre.'" But he adds that he strongly advises his colleague, the Consul Octavius, to make himself scarce. "'You never know what angry soldiers will do when their commander isn't watching.'" So that was Sinna's answer. But it was said that Marius stood by the platform and watched. He didn't smile or greet them. He just looked at them and said nothing. The ambassadors returned shortly afterwards to invite Sinna and Marius and their associates in. But Marius replied, it's not lawful for an exile to enter the city. He was a law-abiding man entering a free city, They'd have to get the tribunes to call a plebiscite and vote to rescind the decree against him. He would wait. And so, at last, after another day or so's delay as the Senate arranged for this request to be filled, the victors enter Rome. And at this point, I want to pause and note something. There are a lot of stories about what happened after Cinna and Marius retook the city Some of these we have recounted in the life of Sertorius already. And most of the accounts that were available some 180 years later when Plutarch was doing his research, they were written by people who, for various reasons, were extremely hostile to the memory of Marius, even to the point of being inaccurate, particularly Rutilius and Sulla, who were not actually there, it should be noted, So it's hard to figure out what exactly went on in those days. Let's save that kind of subject for the comparison episode coming soon. But yes, the account in Plutarch is the negative one, and perhaps it was even unfair. However, whatever the conflicting stories, there can be no doubt that, for some people in Rome at least, what happened next was a fulfillment of their worst nightmare. Octavius the consul who once drove Cinna out by force of arms "'refuses now to leave the city, "'and we're told that in his last days "'he gave himself over entirely "'to the superstitions he was inclined to, "'soothsayers and books of riddling ancient prophecies, "'promising him everything would be okay. "'And he was warned. "'One of Senna's lieutenants "'was approaching with his horsemen, "'but he sat and waited on his consular throne. "'He was dragged off it and decapitated.' His was the first head that was affixed to the speaker's platform in the forum, the rostra, in the course of the Roman Civil War, and many, many more were to follow in later years. And there are many stories Plutarch and others like Appian relate, stories of chaotic and arbitrary reprisals. Despite Cinna's weak promises, many prominent men were killed, homes were looted and there was a period of acute breakdown of law and order. Marius had a bodyguard of Thracian ex-slave thugs. They called themselves the Spike Boots. And it was said that Marius got so casual in exacting revenge that as he saw someone he knew in the streets, he would simply nod his head, and his Thracians would slaughter the man on the spot. We're told one former friend of his, a senator and former praetor named Ancarius, simply approached and greeted Marius, and then Marius didn't respond, and that was enough of a sign. Killed right there in the street. Other friends of his who had stayed in the city took that as a sign to keep indoors. Those are the stories, at least. The end of Marcus Antonius, the orator, is especially sad. After many victories won in politics together, Antonius had betrayed Marius, yes, but worse for Antonius, one of Marius' most dedicated partisans was Gnaeus Papirius Carbo. Some two decades earlier, Antonius had prosecuted Carbo's father ruthlessly, and he chose to commit suicide instead of face the shame of exile. Carbo wanted Antonius, the man who had ruined his father, And Marius, by this point, had little interest in restraining his ferocious colleagues from people who had betrayed him. The word went out. The hunt was on. Antonius fled to the house of a friend of his, a man of modest means, who was eager to help him and hide him. But he was inadvertently betrayed by one of the man's slaves, The slave went to the innkeeper nearby for supplies, and he ordered better wine than usual. And the innkeeper made a comment, Fancy stuff, my friend. And the slave leaned in and whispered, We have a special guest, Marcus Antonius, the orator, former consul and censor, the most eloquent man in Rome. Well, the innkeeper goes and reports it to Carbo's men. Soldiers show up at the house, ready to do away with Antonius, and they're let in, but when they approach him, blades drawn, Antonius begins addressing them, and such was his power of speech that these soldiers were ready to put down their weapons and spare him, but their superior officer is waiting outside, and he's wondering what's taking so long, and he storms in and sees the scene. And then he runs up himself and stabs Antonius in the middle of his speech. Antonius's head soon joined Octavius's on the rostra in the middle of the forum. But Carbo wasn't the man who ended up getting blamed for this. At least in the sources Plutarch was reading, it was Marius himself. Antonius was actually one of Cicero's heroes. Antonius shows up as a major character in Cicero's dialogue on the orator but Cicero actually blamed Cinna for the death of Antonius. Well, as for many of the political executions, sometimes there were trials, sometimes not, it's not always clear who the person was who had the grievance or vendetta, who of Marius's associates caused the death of who. And still, there were many onlookers at the time who felt that justice was being served. It wasn't revenge, it was righteous punishment. Others were not so convinced. Either way, there can be no question that the man most able to put a stop to all of this, if he had wished, was Marius himself. And whatever murders and atrocities happened, Marius allowed it. Cinna, as consul, was perhaps legally responsible, but Marius was morally responsible. There was one death, though, that everyone agreed Marius deliberately engineered— even Marius's admirer, Cicero. It was his former colleague, the man by whose side he had defeated the Cimbri and rode in triumph with through the streets of Rome, Catullus. Catullus had voted death for Marius after Sulla stormed the city. And now friends of Catullus came to Marius. Excuses were made. Sulla was forcing their hand. They pleaded for clemency. But instead... Accusers were produced to initiate one of the many political trials. The charges were grave, high treason. Marius controlled the jurors. The outcome was certain. Catalyst decided to spare them the effort. He locked himself in a room with no vents or windows, lit a charcoal fire and lied down to his final rest. After five days of terror for the enemies of Cinna and Marius, it was Sertorius and Cinna who reestablished order in the city, and they actually ended up rounding up and executing Marius's spike boots, the thugs who had turned to unrestrained plundering now. We hear no reports of Marius giving his permission, nor of him retaliating. Fourteen names are known of the men who were killed in those days, though... There were probably more than that. And the house of Sulla was burnt down to the ground. But after the initial purge, Sinna and Marius allowed many of their enemies in the Senate to leave the city, and many chose this voluntary exile. They went and joined Sulla in the east. Sulla was busy sieging the city of Athens for allying with Mithridates. And this, now, was the problem that Marius and Cinna now turned their attention to. The Sulla problem. The year 86 was approaching, Cinna organized regular elections. They were living in a free city now, right? But there were only two candidates for the two consul slots, Cinna and Marius. And they both won. Cinna is second consulate, and Marius, at last, is prophesied seventh consulship. And Senna was going to handle domestic affairs, Marius foreign, and Marius began making his preparations. He was going to take an army east and relieve Sulla of his command, one way or another. After that, he could finally fight the war with Mithridates, the prize that was the apple of discord between the two rivals those two long years ago. But only ten days into the new year and into his consular office, Marius fell ill. Within seven days after that, he passed away at age 70. And maybe it's not surprising, there are many conflicting versions even of the final days of Marius. Some say he was racked with fear at the prospect of a new war brewing with Sulla, as formidable an enemy as any Roman had ever faced, and that he drank himself into numbness to cope and so left his aged system vulnerable, and then a fever did the rest. Others say that he became delusional and hallucinatory as the fever progressed, that he imagined he was already commanding the war with Mithridates, calling out orders and battle formations from his sickbed. But many other reports say that Marius died in peace with his virtue and his dignity intact. And among the lurid morality tales of the end of Marius, accounts of mental breakdown brought on by multiple forms of excess, Plutarch does relate one more sympathetic account, passed on to history by some of Marius's friends. A certain Gaius Piso, he says, a historian relates that Marius, while walking about with his friends after supper, fell to talking about the events of his life, beginning with his earliest days, and after recounting his frequent reversals of fortune from good to bad and from bad to good, said that it was not the part of a man of sense to trust himself to fortune any longer. And after this utterance, he bade his friends farewell, kept his bed for seven days consecutively, and so died and marius was buried in state with a great public funeral and it was left to his friends and associates to face a very uncertain future that lay before them thanks for listening if you want to honor the memory of gaius marius and what he stood for or perhaps the many victims of his rise and retribution. Share this with someone, and stay tuned for fuller analysis of the lives of Marius and his parallel Greek companion, Pyrrhus, in the comparison episode, coming soon. Before that, we'll have a brief Aftermath episode next week with some takeaways. This episode has gone long enough as it is, so I've saved some of the more philosophical reflections for then. In the meantime, Stay strong, stay ancient, this is Alex Petkus.